Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA employs brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call one 800 245 6000 That's one 800 245 6000 Or visit taxnetworkusa.com slash victor. Taxnetworkusa.com slash victor. <laughs> Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor Davis Hanson is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Busky Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He is a best-selling author, syndicated columnist, essayist, farmer, military historian, classicist. He's everything. He hangs his hat on the webs, inter interwebs, whatever they, whatever it was that Al Gore invented at victorhanson.com and we'll talk more about that later i'm jack fowler a man lucky enough to be the host to ask victor questions the kind of questions i think our listeners would like to ask victor if they had the uh the honor of sitting in this seat and i do know i have the honor of it hey victor lots political and lots cultural and lots academic happening so one of the more pressing things is um the uh fate of kevin mccarthy as the potential speaker we have Donald Trump's playing cards. Those are two big political stories that we'll get your take on right after these important messages. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month when you use the promo code VICTOR50 at factormeals.com slash VICTOR50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month, head to factormeals.com slash victor50, that's V-I-C-T-O-R-5-0, 
and use the code VICTOR50. That's code VICTOR50 at factormeals.com slash VICTOR50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Folks, we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the tax-friendly way to preserve your charitable giving. In times of crisis, those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up civil society find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have a charitable resource ready to deploy when they're needed most. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds or giving accounts. You can use these funds as your own charitable investment account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, aligned with your values, and private. Donors Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities while also using their giving account to simultaneously support think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in a time of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor-advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org justnews for the ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor advice fund can preserve your ability to give to the charities you love. That's donorstrust.org slash just news. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So Victor, um, hope you're well, by the way, um, week, week before Christmas, I don't assume there's no, no snow in Selma, but hopefully up no. in the mountains. Very foggy um, and cold, no snow. Okay. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, Today, on Sunday, as restated what everyone, I think, knows who's been following this story, that the handful of uh, GOP members who are opposing his speakership are holding firm, are not budging. And that vote for speaker should be in two weeks or so, January 3rd. It doesn't look doesn't look good. We've talked about this before, Victor. Any thoughts? Yeah, I, I don't know what the game plan is. I guess these holdouts five, six, seven that have the ability to deny him the speakership, they're going to draw it out and then they don't have an alternative candidate. It's not like they're they have a slate, this candidate or that candidate versus McCarthy. I guess the the idea is that they're going to hold the whole speakership process hostage and then they're going to say to McCarthy we don't know who's going to be, but you're not. And so sit down with us and tell me which people you would like in your place and we'll pick one and then we'll vote and everybody will vote for us. Or they're going to give him a set of demands that he has to pursue. Uh, the problem is that they're a very small number. And so the majority of people are behind McCarthy, the vast majority. And so at some point, uh, that vast majority is going to say you destroy you destroy our our thin majority, and you're nihilist and you don't have any ability to get another person, and so, or they're going to have to go, somebody either side is going to have to go to the Democrat if they do that and they ask for four or five so-called blue dog votes from Democrats it's going to be a disaster because they've mortgaged their future, and the sad thing about this is. Although they should have won 30 to 40 seats, they did take the House and they did lose the presidency and they did lose the Senate twice. And they gained seats in 2020 
when they lost the presidency and they and they took the house so in some sense whether you like it or not mccarthy has a much better record electorally than mitch mcconnell does and notice that nobody's doing this in the senate as for his minority leadership position so at this point yes i understand that they have legitimate grievances maybe but we're so bad off in this country that we've got to go with what we what's reasonable and Kevin McCarthy, I know a lot of people don't like him and they think he's a rhino. He's not a rhino. You can make the argument. But I think the argument that his critics make is he's ineffective, i.e. he's not a Devin Nunes. And I don't want to beat this drum too much, but had Devin Nunes been the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, which he would be right now, he would be in a very, a, a very good position. That's all I'm going to say. He's a very close friend of Kevin McCarthy. He's very loyal. But he's the type of fighter that understands a left wing mind that would have been essential right now. But I'm, I'm for them. I'm not that I matter, but I think at this late date, all they're doing is contrasting the unity and the party discipline under Pelosi. And they don't have that in the house. They don't have the ability to, to unite. Nancy Pelosi wrecked the country with six or seven vote majority in the House. And the Democrat uh, Republicans apparently can't save the country with the same margin. Yeah, that's, it's an important point about the, the uh, psychology of the two parties. Well, Victor, let's get a little more of your psychological assessment. And this would, uh, this is a Donald Trump and the news from not only the news, but the activity from this past week. So the president, the former president announced major announcement. And it turned out he was promoting a digital playing card series that uh, dozens of, 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 of cards and not real cards like baseball cards, but digital of the president in various poses. It was selling for $99 a set, a limited number. They all sold out within a day, uh, netting who the president or whomever was behind <laughs> it over four million bucks. Lots of people find this exasperating, another straw on a camel's back. Maybe it's broken it for some people. Let, let me just read this uh, com the piece from... Um, uh, Washington Examiner. So one of the one of the people who find this exasperating is of all Steve Bannon, one of Donald yeah. Trump's most loyal warriors. And here's a piece. Let, let, let me just read this quickly, Victor, and then get your thoughts. Not only on this particular thing, but then also more broadly about former presidents uh, cashing in on their presidency. Okay, okay, I can't do this anymore. An exasperated Bannon said. This is on his uh, podcast while playing a clip of Trump promoting the digital digital cards on his war room show. He's one of the greatest presidents in history. But I've got to tell you, whoever, what business partner and anybody in the comms team, anybody at Mar-a-Lago. And I love the folks down there, but we are at war. They ought to be fired today. Bannon recoiled alongside former Trump administration deputy assistant to the president, Sebastian Gorka. Can you imagine Gorka criticizing Trump and former Trump campaign advisor Stephen Cortez? Some of their unease stemmed 
from a video Trump cut of promoting the NFTs. Those are the cards. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that the it, laser coming out of his eye. Yeah. In the promotional yeah. video, Trump mused that he w- was, quote, hopefully your favorite president of all time, better than Lincoln, better than Washington, end quote. Never should have happened. This is now Gorka speaking. I mean, look, it's fun. It's hyperbolic. But whoever wrote that pitch should be fired and should never be involved. I don't want them making the presidential napkins at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, Victor, OK, uh, fire the fire the consultant. But at some point, Donald Trump said, yeah, let's do this. So why well, look at what? I, yeah. Yeah. I look at what his opponents say. And here's what's happening. They are shifting their animus, their invective, their smears toward Ron DeSantis right now. That's what that's who they're going after. And they have outsourced their hatred of Donald Trump to the legal system. So gradually, Donald Trump is not going to be the obsession of the left anymore because, A, they think that DeSantis is a much more formidable candidate in the long run and may have a chance to get the nomination. And B, they feel that if somebody's digging their own grave, don't interrupt them. And so they're not going to go after Donald Trump. They're going to let Merrick Garland do it. They're going to go out. They've gone after his company for taxes. They're going to go out. They've got the special prosecutor who's got Obama ties. They're going to trump up something with Mar-a-Lago. So that's what they feel. And that tells you that they don't feel any longer that Donald Trump is the existential threat that he was. And why do they feel that way? And I, I wrote a column, does Trump really want to be president? And the answer is, I don't know. He's going to be 78. Maybe that's the reason. But if you really want to go to be president, you don't attack on the eve of the midterms Ron DeSantis and alienate his supporters. You don't tell people with a wink and nod you're going to run because that'll just get people out on the left in some districts to vote who might otherwise not. Have. You don't go after Glenn Youngkin and make fun of his name as if it's Chinese. You don't make a racialist attack on Mitch McConnell's wife. You don't bring in Nick Fuentes and Kenya West into the into Mar-a-Lago. You don't speculate publicly about changing the laws or maybe even the Constitution. Maybe it was in fun. Maybe it was this kind of a riff. But you don't do that as if you can replay the 2020 election. And you certainly don't make an existential announcement that you're going to have a, a major policy. And then it's this hawking of, of money, you know, to, to make. And, and you also don't go out and try to get candidates, uh, anti-McConnell candidates and Herschel Walker, Blake Masters, Dr. Oz. And then when the going gets rough and you've got this big stash from raising money on your post-presidency, you don't distribute it liberally. In other words, Five million in the last week to Herschel Walker, 10 million to Blake Masters. He didn't do that. So then if you don't do that, then your criticism that Mitch McConnell was hoarding his cash and wasting it on an, a civil war in Alaska between two Republicans and backing the least conservative, then you, you don't have as much, I don't know, persuasion on that because everybody's going to say, well, yeah, Mitch screwed up or he's selfish or he's only self-interested, but why didn't you step in with your stash? And so there were all these things. And the answer is why, why, why? Because otherwise a new cycle is drifting Trump's way. 
He was a Cassandra screaming out to the atmosphere. There's no Russian collusion. Yes, now that's proven. The Wuhan lab, everybody. This was a this was a this was an engineered virus. It might even have been a bioweapon. Yes, that may be true, Mr. Trump. Gosh, I'm telling you, Hunter's laptop was authentic. Wow, Trump was right again. So they banned me for Twitter. They have no, they have no rationale. They, they let the Taliban on. They let the theoc- theoc- theocracy in Iran. Yes, Mr. Trump, now we understand why you're upset. So all of those conspiracy, da- quote unquote, were not conspiracies. They were the truth. And he said them when everybody thought he was nuts. And then you look at the Biden record, border, inflation, fuel, racial relations, Afghanistan, debt, crime. And you contrast it with 2019 and 20. So everything would be breaking his way. All he had to do was say, you know, I am going each week. He should have said, I'm going to talk about an issue this week. It's crime. This is what I did in 2019, 20. This is what I'm going to do. It's going to be even better in 2024. This is what I did on energy. This is what I did on the Abrams Accord. And go down the list. And don't talk about the 2020 election to the extent that, except we're going to really address 70% mail-in early balloting that makes the last three weeks of a campaign or election day voting or election night tabulation irrelevant. We're going to address that. But you can't do that. And that begs the question. There has to be three explanations. One, his advisors are gone. So the people who tried to, that had good advice to maybe, I don't know, Stephen Miller, Kaylee McElhaney, whoever they were, uh, are gone. And they've got obsequious toadies down there at Mar-a-Lago that just want to cash in with him. Or B, he doesn't want to be president. He just, he wants to to just be a post-president that is a quote-unquote candidate for about a year to raise money, and then he just wants to be a kingmaker and say, I'll give my endorsement to this, or I'll walk, or I'll take my base with him. That's the second. And the third is there's something wrong with him. You know what I mean? That no rational person uh, starts a campaign with a sizable lead over all of his Republican primary candidates and a 50-50 poll against an incumbent president this early and then manages within two two months, less than two months, to destroy that so that he's in some polls behind DeSantis and in others behind Biden. So that just suggests that there's something wrong. Either there's a, I don't know what it would be, but it's either going to be he doesn't want to be president, you know, he doesn't want to be president, or he wants to be some type of kingmaker, or he thinks he's too old, or he's got he's just too erratic, and I don't and is who knows, but it, it's one of the the strangest implosions in modern political history. And it's still I'm, I want to qualify that it's still early, so if he brought a new team in there. And they had absolute discipline and, you know what I mean, on his social media content, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe they could recover. But at the way he's going to bleed support now 
uh, from his right. base. When you got guys like Mike Flynn, Steve Bannon, Sebastian Gorka, Steve Cortez, when they, what they're really saying, the subtext is, Mr. President, Mr. Trump, you're putting us in a position that is untenable. We're not right. going to defend you in a hundred percent fashion. Even Roger Kimball had a good uh, essay today about all of this. And he was amused that Trump, nobody else could hawk trading cards and be widely caricatured for such a prank or gambit or whatever you want to call it and still make money on it and have it sold out on the one hand, but nobody else would do that. And right. so he was, I mean, Roger's been pretty supportive of Trump. And like, like I said, I, I wrote a Excuse me, this on, is in a, this is an American greatness. Where yes, did he write? Yeah. Write this uh, piece? Okay. I think it's an American greatness. Yes. Okay. And then, you know, I wrote a, a column. Does Trump really want to be president? And another one is Trump or Captain Quig, but it, it's, uh, it's a tragedy. I mean, because I look back at the, at those pre-COVID and then during the COVID years that were pretty stressful for the country and for Trump. I look at all of the smears and all of the invective banning from social media, the first crazy impeachment that was absolutely indefensible, the Russian collusion hoax, the laptop trying to affect the weaponization of the FBI. And then under all that pressure, he finally secured the border. He right. finally got crime down before COVID. He finally got unemployment way down and with almost 2% growth and no inflation. And he had a current foreign policy. He may not have liked what he said, but he beefed up NATO. We could go on and on. We were energy independent. Fuels were low. Cost was low. We were expanding. Keystone would have been built. Maybe the Constitution of Natural Gas Line. Anwar was, it was all going well. Mm -hmm. And so th this is. You know, he should have won a Nobel Prize for the Middle, Middle East peace. The intractable now, uh, problem. And now what right. do we read? We read that the Arab world is terrified of Iran. They don't think the United States will do anything about Iran. They think the United States is not on their side. I'm talking about the moderate regimes. And the result is that almost every week, there's a news story that a Chinese diplomat or a Russian envoy is somewhere in the Middle East trying to take up that vacuum. And then second, that the moderate regimes who have restive populations, especially Jordan now, are becoming increasingly hostile to Israel because they feel fear that the United States will not back them. Or worse yet, they feel a recurrence of the Obama bankrupt crazy, insane policy of 2009 to 16, in which the United States apparently thought they were going to balance Sunni, uh, right-wing, mod uh, moderate toward Israel governments and Israel as well with support, with a wink and a nod for Iran, for Hezbollah, for Syria, for Hamas, and create a tension there and then be the adjudicator. That was absolutely insane. And I think that's what we're back to now. This administration will go to any depth to get an Iran deal. They've restored money via the UN to Hamas. They don't, if they say anything about the Middle East, it's not critical of the Assad's, the Assad's or Hezbollah. It's always critical of Israel. And, and the, the Arab world looks at that and they put their finger up in the air and they think, hmm. 
we have a natural propensity to be hostile to Israel and maybe to the West in general, but we're afraid of the United States and we respect the United States. And when the United States is on your side, it has the ability to give you top-notch weaponry, intelligence, money. And now it's drifting to that Iran block. So we're going to make the necessary adjustments and maybe cater to our own radical populations that hate Israel and break up this new growing alliance between moderate regimes and Israel. It, I mean, if you sat down, Jack, and you said, and I wrote that column, How to Destroy the United States in 10 Steps. If you if you just said, how would you in, in 24 months destroy the United States? You could not do a better job than what's been done on the border, on right. inflation, on energy, on the Middle East, on Afghanistan, on crime. You couldn't do it. Right. Was anybody but, talking about reparations three years ago? Was anybody saying as they were in Oakland, San Francisco the other day with a $25 billion California debt. Sammy and we, I talked about this. Was anybody saying, no matter what you give, it's not enough. It's never going to be enough. We want $800,000 for a house, each African-American. And you know what? That's not enough. So was anybody talking about crazy things like that? Or no, no. even small, like city councils giving your trans, we're going to give you monthly yeah. payments. Yeah. Like, yeah. Where, where did 25, this sanity $25 billion, $25 billion in uh, deficit this year in California. And businesses fleeing. San Francisco looks like a ghost town. Los Angeles looks like Escape from L.A. movie. Uh, you name it. The whole state is in an implosion. Gavin Newsom may be the worst governor the state has ever had. And that's yeah. saying a lot, given some of the people in the 19th century that were governors. But this is insane. Yeah. And it, it just frames this question. Why is Trump doing this? Because he's letting down millions of people. They were looking toward him to correct his cul-de-sac tweets and all that extraneous things. Hit the ground running with his reelection. Be very disciplined have a blasting, critical, tough critique of leftism and the Biden record. Remind us about all these threats to, to democracy with these conspiracies. And they were conspiracies. If you look at the FBI, vis-a-vis -vis Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, right. laptop, all that stuff. And it didn't happen. Instead, we're talking about trading cards. It, it's just yeah. insane. Victor, we're talking about that at a time when uh, hundreds of thousands of Americans are dying every year uh, from drugs, and that is related to our border. And we're going to talk about that, get your comments on that right after these important messages. Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S., still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses. And Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and Its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, The Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. 
Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American Citizenship and Its Decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hansen today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. Hillsdale.edu slash VDH. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show, recording again on Sunday, the 18th of December. This podcast episode will be up on the web, uh, justthenews.com. That's the podcast home, John Solomon's website. On Tuesday, the 20th, speaking of websites, victorhanson.com is Victor's official website. I encourage our listeners to visit it regularly. You will find links to all kinds of uh, appearances by Victor, for example, the other day he was on Megyn Kelly's podcast. You'll find that there and other other appearances, all his writings, links to his books, which, by the way, there still may be time to order some some for as Christmas gifts for those people, particularly those who love military history. I always encourage the Second World Wars. What a what terrific gift that would be for somebody, uh, you know, and love who loves military history. But there's a tremendous amount of material that Victor writes for the website called Ultra. They're Ultra articles, and you can only read them if you have a subscription. Subscriptions cost us $5 a month, $50 for the year. Take the five bucks, stick your toe in the water. You're, you're going to wish you had done it sooner. Wonderful material. Uh, we're going to hopefully we'll have time to talk about one of those uh, pieces, Victor, the eight part series you've done on, on the hist leftist hysteria. Um, so all that said, Victor, today, again on the on Sunday, 
There's an op-ed, an editorial, I should say, in the New York Post, and it's about uh, the fentanyl uh, disaster. I mean, it's it's staggering what is going on in America. A few months ago, before the election, a few congressmen, Chip Roy, uh, Jim Banks of Indiana, Chip Roy's from Texas, publicly pressed the administration, like, what the hell is going on at the, the borders? Not only the flood of people coming in, but clearly the drugs and resultant um, rampage of deaths across across the country. No response from Joe Biden. Two, two small little uh, paragraphs from this editorial. Um, Our open border is an open invitation to sophisticated, violent, and vast Mexican cartels. For over a decade, these syndicates have been shifting their production and distribution efforts from cocaine and heroin to synthetic drugs, meth, and fentanyl. Those drugs are much easier to overdose on and far more addictive, and their flood into our country is clearly responsible for the brain-shattering increase in drug deaths. In 2007, these numbers are horrific. In 2007, the nation saw 27,000 overdoses. Last year, 107,000 per CDC data. Of those, the agency estimates around 71,000 were fentanyl involved. You know, Victor, I did a little math over to Visalia, town near you, 141,000. Think yeah. about that. In two years, two years of drug deaths from just from fentanyl in America is equivalent to a major city in California. This is and and, and the Biden administration. 100,000 dead a year. 100,000 dead a year. It's Afghanistan. It's Korea. It's Vietnam. It's uh, Iraq all put together nearly in one year. And they know what's going on. And they welcome it. And we've got the socialists in Mexico City who has virtually declared war in the United States. These caravans now are coming with the aid of the Mexican government. And you could stop it. And I think that, well, I want to be very careful what I say, but I think you could make the argument that Corinne John, Jean-Pierre's statement that the border was secure or they're working to secure it is the biggest lie in the history of any press secretary. And she knows it's a lie. And when you hear Mallorca say the same thing, they sh- he should be impeached. He won't be convicted. And I've got to the point now where they sh- I know that it's a distraction, but they should really consider about having an article of impeachment about Joe Biden, because this is ne- we've never seen anything like this. Four to five million illegal entries, that is crossings, not necessarily probably three million persons, but just the cross that are here now. And this is they're coming in at a time, you know, when COVID is, is in L.A., it's it's uh, epidemic again. And it started, you know, I had it a third time a week ago. And these people are just coming right across the border. There's no vaccination. There's no mask. There's no test. And that just makes a mockery of all of this. Oh, we have a, a sophisticated COVID policy. They're coming across and there's no there's no money to handle it. They need almost immediate legal help, educational help, food help, shelter help. You name it. And there's no plan for that whatsoever. They're, they're, it's just a mockery of every legal immigrant who's followed every rule, dotted every I crossed every T is waiting in India or South Korea to come or France, wherever to come. And they're just mocking them. 
and they're coming across the border with a blank check. They're encouraged to do it. And then this Corinne Jean-Pierre is lying every single day. Mayorkas is lying every single day. And then the left-wing media, to the extent they're not overtly embarrassed, will say, you're racist. And they publish continually this demography is destiny, ha, ha, ha. And if you say, yep, that's what you're doing, they say, you're a racist. You're a advocate of the great replacement theory. No, it's your theory. You're the one that calls it demography is destiny. And it's just unthinkable. And they don't, what it's based on is this, ultimately. If we want to cut through all of the rhetoric, the crap, the partisanship, it's based on this, that the elite, bi-coastal elite, is not fertile. They don't believe in child raising. They're big advocates of abortion. They feel their lifestyles are so gifted. They're so affluent. They're so leisure. The last thing they want is two to four kids running around the house in dirty diapers and up all night. So they, and the data show it, that fertility is much less in the blue states, blue cities, and red states. It's about 1.7 nationwide, 1.68, I think. So it's at historical lows in the United States. We haven't seen this since the Great Depression. And so in lieu of that, these people want, they want nannies, they want cooks, they want yard people, they want landscapers, they want people to take care of their parents. If they have one child, maybe they want somebody, you know, as I said, to change the diapers. So they want capital, human capital to come in. Corporations want human capital to come in. They don't care about the social or cultural costs or the problems that were a salad bowl host. We're not a melting pot anymore. We do not have confidence in our values, our histories, our customs to say to those people, you chose to come into this country. The first thing you did is you came in illegally. The second thing you did, you resided illegally. You willingly broke the law. So you're going to be deported and you're going to go back. And next time you come by, back, we're going to evaluate you on whether you have skills, whether you speak the English language, whether you're diverse, and whether you're going to do it legally. And we could stop it in a minute. We stopped it by 2020, and we know how to stop it. You get rid of catch and release, get rid of it, as Trump did. You go tell Mexico City, if you don't stop it, you and Venezuela and Colombia and the Castros and Cuba, here's what we're going to do. We're going to tax 10% on all these remittances because these people are coming over here and they are sending money back to your government by design. And we're making up that difference. We're offering them thousands of dollars a year in subsidies to free up cash. So they send back to you 60 billion. But we're going to put a 10% tax on them. That's going to be 6 billion. And that $6 billion is going to go for the wall, and we're going to finish it in one year. And if you keep doing it, we're going to go back to the re-examine trade and taxation and tariffs, as Trump did. And we could stop it tomorrow. And we're also going to make sure that if you think you're a refugee from political pers- persecution, you have to apply in your home state. You're just not going to cross the border. And we talk about fentanyl. It's a war on us. Chinese, there are places in Northern California in the foothills and the mountains that are de facto run by 
cartels south of the border and Chinese interest. That's just a fact. So they're overrunning the country and they're killing 100,000 Americans a year. And this president apparently thinks that's a tolerable cost to create a new demographic that will supply cheap labor. And I don't think it will because there's no work ethic anymore in America. So when somebody crosses the border, he's not going to get the message. This is a can-do, up-by-the-bootstraps, tough society where you work. It's more, oh, I just crossed the border. They tell me I have grievances against the host because they're racist and sexist and transphobic and homophobic, and they're generous and they're entitled. Why should I work when they they feel that their labor participation is already 61%, 61% of the available workforce is laboring. So it's a mess, and it's by design, it's deliberate. And they think there's political, there's cultural, there's social advantages in doing this. And they say that. They boast about it. And when they, when they say final thought, Jack, there's two words they always use. One is, oh, our immigration system is broken. No, it's not broken, not uh, passive voice. You broke it. You intentionally broke it. It's broken because you won't enforce existing immigration laws because you're revolutionaries. You have sanctuary cities, which are illegal. They're you know, there's South Carolina 1860 type nullification of federal law. You brought that on. You stopped the wall. You brought back catch and release. You coddled uh, the Mexican government. So it's not broken. You broke it. And second, we need comprehensive immigration reform. Well, we did that with the simpson Mazzoli Act. And the great bargain, if you remember, was Ronald Reagan, uh, Al Simpson said, well, we're going to give amnesties for people who have been here under certain conditions. Okay. And in exchange for that, we're going to let the INS uh, deport people who are here illegally and everybody's going to have to have an I-9 form. We're going to pull back from the border and we're going to give amnesty on the right, but the left is going to allow us to deport people and we're going to have and you can't work and that, that they never of course they never fulfilled their bargain so that simpson mazzoli act was an abject failure and we've done comprehensive and comprehensive immigration reform is a euphemism for an open border that's what they want all we have to do again jack is just finish the wall fix the rickety sections like trump did and catch and release pressure the government south of the border and uh, deport people. Deport. And it, it, right. would st- it would stop tomorrow once the message got across. That right. don't go in the United States. You will be deported. The monies that you gave the coyotes will be. And then we can go into the United States once we have a secure border and we can start to distinguish people who are here illegally. And the vast majority right. should be deported. If they've been here five years, let's say, they have no criminal record, they're gainfully employed, maybe they would be able to apply for legal residence. But uh, right, th- that's not going to be the majority. The majority, we've got you know three or four million people that just came in this year. Joe Biden's plan is, everybody should remember that, in the eight years that he thinks he's going to be president. He wants eight to 10 million illegal aliens. He wants a city the size of New York. That's his legacy. And he thinks 
that he's going to make Nevada and Colorado and Georgia and Arizona as blue as California and New Mexico were. That's that's the idea. And, and he does uh, this while uh, the young men and women of Scranton die. He doesn't care. Uh, yeah. care less. He's well, a, Vicky, not the law. I mean, think about ahead. it. If he ha- if he's pressed, all what does he revert to? It's it's. I think people should realize what Biden does under the cloak of dementia. He just simply lies. He just the other day said that his what his uncle got the purple the purple heart. heart. Yeah, and he said his son died in Iraq. Uh, he just he just says things and then people say, well, you can't criticize Joe. He's got some memory problems. No. And that's how he that's how he operates. He just says things that are completely untrue. The border is secure. The, the right wing doesn't want comprehensive immigration. Yeah. It's just they broke the immigration that it's just that's how he operates. And people and has always operated. He always did that. Yeah. The difference yeah. now is before when Joe Biden lied. There were consequences. When he plagiarized Neil Kinnock's speech, he dropped out. When he said Barack Obama was the first black uh, presidential candidate, basically speak the English language, clean and articulate, he finally dropped out. When he lied about his uh, college record and didn't tell us that he was kicked out for plagiarizing for a semester, I think, or he talked about being a long semi-truck driver or football, there were political consequences. He was a joke. And then Barack Obama resurrected him and he said, you know, don't underestimate Joe's ability to blank it up. And his Robert Gates, his defense secretary, said he's been wrong on every major decision. So they knew about him and they resurrected him. Right. And after that, there were no consequences because he could always plead that he had a little memory. That's just old Joe, just Joe. It's like you're like your granddad, great guy, but he now and then he drifts in and out of reality. So don't say he's a liar. He's not a liar. He's not a fabulous. You know, when your grandfather can't quite remember your birthday, you call him a liar. That's Joe Biden. Right. Uh, he's a demented Walter Mitty and always has been. So, Victor, you talked about these things coming about by design, that they are deliberate. And I think that will mesh very well with the. Uh, getting your reflections on this significant series you've written for your website, uh, Left Wing Hysteria and the Art of Psychodrama. And let's get your thoughts on that right after these final important messages. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion. Hunter Biden and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Back with the Victor Davis 
Hanson show, uh, Jack Fowler here. I got to put a little plug in for myself. I am the author of Civil Thoughts, a free weekly email newsletter that I write for the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic. I offer a dozen to 14 recommended readings, important articles I've seen the previous week. Hey, I think you're intelligent. Maybe you want to check these out. Here's the link. Here's an excerpt. Sign up for it at civilthoughts.com. It's free. We're not building lists. We're not renting your name out. We have no transactional uh, um, scheme up our sleeve. So, uh, Victor, uh, I hope we well, let's talk about this. And I hope we'll, let's try it also to shoehorn in and that probably deserves its own podcast. But another piece you've you've written about comparing two billionaires. But I just like to, to uh, reinforce that you have written this significant series for your website. It's Ultra Articles, Left Wing Hysteria and the Art of the Psychodrama. And at the end of this, you talk about the three um, important days in American history. And and here, let me just read the very final paragraph. Um, um, you, you wrote uh, three days, a COVID-19 panic-driven decision to lock down the U.S., a national hysteria following the death of George Floyd and mass madness following January 6th. And what do these three days in turn share? They were crisis fodder that the left saw as gifts that ensured permanent changes in American life, otherwise impossible without such pretext. Victor, um, if there's anything you'd like to say in summary about this uh, series I greatly appreciate it. And I think it's terrific what you've written here. And then we can maybe move on to talk about uh, Bankman Freed versus uh, versus Musk. Well, what I was trying to do in that series was suggest that left wing, progressive, socialist, whatever you want to call the hard left, is contrary to human nature. And by that, I mean people do not believe society should be a quality of result. They feel there's human rewards and punishments and all people are not equal and the way to make people equal is not to create an all-powerful ruthless government but to create a moral or religious sense of you know brotherhood to other people less fortunate nevertheless uh, the left maintains power so how do they do that how do they get control of the institutions and in this series i, I use this word you know psycho psychodramas or whatever. They wanted to change the United States. So Gavin Newsom told us that the COVID lockdown was an occasion to create a more progressive capitalism. By that, he meant things like reparations or what you talked about, uh, subsidies for transgendered people in San Francisco or letting the homeless have free hotel space or whatever it was. That was the more humane capitalism. Hillary Clinton said the same thing. She said, COVID allows us to have a single-payer health system, sort of like a socialist European health care. And then, of course, we had Klaus Schwab and Great Reset that said this was a time to make us more diverse, more green, etc. And that, by that, he meant to transcend elected governments and create a, a platonic guardian class internationally that would force corporations to follow their rules or maybe enlist them because among them, they would be willing. And so... That was what COVID did. And then the second, you know, there was also January 6th. If anybody had said before January 6th, 
the left is going to militarize Washington, ring it with barbed wire, put 30,000 troops on the streets with no definable threat, and keep that there for weeks to remind people that the right wing are in armed insurrectionists, and then to broadcast a lie that there were armed insurrectionaries inside the Capitol or that Ashley Babbitt was an existential threat and had to be shot by a sober and judicious officer or that there were no FBI informants blanketing the grounds and inside the Capitol. Nobody would believe that. And yet that moment really, that moment led to the or aided or fueled the weaponization of the FBI, this idea that the only real threat from terrorism comes from a bunch of people with cow horns and paint on their face, and gave us Christopher Ray's FBI. And what followed was logical from that, whether that was putting Peter Navarro in leg irons or confronting former Trump supporters at airports, or going down to Mar-a-Lago and trying to raid an ex-president's home over a dispute of whether a document was classified or not. All of that originated from that opportunity the left saw in January 6th. And let's make no mistake about it. I mean opportunity because we did have 120 days of mass rioting from May to election time in 2020. This wasn't a bunch of people buffoonishly rioting, illegally committing probably misdemeanors and low-level felonies. These were people who were responsible for 35 deaths. They they burned a federal courthouse. They burned a historic church near the White House. They tried to storm the White House grounds and sent the Secret Service and the president into a bunker. They burned a police precinct with police in it. They tried to kill them. They did, as I said, 35 to 40 people died. There were $2 billion in property damage, and there were 1,500 police officers that were injured. And there's no nobody and anybody who suggested we might need to have some federal troops help police was damned as a fascist. And yet these were the fascists who militarized the capital for iconic and virtue signaling purposes and political agendas. So what I'm getting about all these psychodramas, and there was a lot of them, was that they changed the United States. And and I meant that about uh, this new. So what were the changes that came out of January 6th? To take that one example, that was a speech, the Phantom of the Opera speech that all of a sudden, Trump supporters were semi-fascist and non-American, and that really changed that midterm. I think it did. And out of the COVID lockdown, the government got the power to do almost anything. They could tell a landlord, "You can't rent. You can't collect rent. I don't really care about you. Spent a lot of money painting the apartment, or fixing the plumbing, or rewiring it. I don't care. You're not going to collect any rent from your noble." renter. You are suspect. And Anthony Fauci told us that, that we had the right to interrupt you because of a national emergency. Interrupt meaning cancel out your lease. And the same thing with balloting. We woke up one day, Jack, and what was called, we used to have this word called absentee ballot, where you kind of wrote and said, you, you, you got your 
notice about voting with an application and you said, you know, I'm going to, I got a terminal illness. I got a chronic illness. I'm going to be out of town. I want an absentee ballot. And they sent it with no discussion. And that was anywhere from 10 to 25% of the balloting. And we all got together on election night. We all went out on election day, showed our IDs. We voted election night. We looked at the returns. We stayed up till two in the morning and we had a result. And now suddenly that doesn't exist. It's mail-in, early balloting. The last debate of a campaign does not matter because the majority of people have already voted. We have something called third-party vote harvesting. People come to your house. They wait outside. They hand you the ballot or you have the ballot. They tell you what to vote. They deliver it themselves to a ballot box. We have same-day registration. If your signature is incorrect, if it doesn't match the registrar's list, if you only have partial addresses, if you mail it in after uh, election, it doesn't matter. And, and this is 70% in many states, and there's no way to offend. That is a revolutionary act, and that came out of uh, on, on the COVID as well. I could go on and on because it's a yeah. long nine piece. I don't need to, but what yeah. I'm trying to argue is that the left scans the horizon for uh, opportunistic moments of chaos, the 2008 economic meltdown that gave us just that huge spending stimulus and one payer, basically our Obamacare and almost one payer health plans. And they find that there's an opportunity to push through in times of chaos agendas that otherwise people would never, 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 uh, never support in calm times. I guess this gets back a little, Victor, to the first topic we talked about. And I, I didn't Kevin even McCarthy. get into George, Yeah, I didn't even you get know. into George Floyd. That that tragic death right. led led to a revolutionary change in the United States. No, nobody remembered in that May Day that that death would mean that hiring. And admissions to universities, everything from commercial, everything in the United States would change because of that one death. And uh, the whole idea of a lockdown and social distancing mass was entirely discredited once people started demonstrating with BLM and Antifa. And the healthcare community said, it's more important for you to go out and demonstrate than wear a mask. Uh, our social distance, but everybody else must except these people. And so the, those three dates, you know, the George Floyd death and death and the COVID lockdown at that one day decision and the January 6th changed the country. Well, just finish my little thought there, Victor. And I, I'm sorry to uh, I, I you off there. It was like a, the, the, the six or seven handful of recalcitrant Republicans or opponents of Kevin McCarthy, uh, you talk about the left seeing, scanning the horizon, and there's just a lack of that on the political right. It's uh, quite discouraging. Uh, Victor, let's. I think we have time for one more uh, topic. And you you wrote you wrote a, a column, your last syndicated column, two antithetical billionaires comparing the infamous Sam. Bankman Freed, who still and never will, I think, attain the status, the despised status of Bernie Madoff. And you compare him with with uh, Elon Musk. And I'll just read how it ends. 
How sad that the left despises a man, Musk, who built real things against the odds and took risks to champion free speech and how predictable it worshipped uh, worshiped a leftist fraud who built a million investors and ruined the lives of thousands. The hatred of the accomplished Musk and the worship of the hollow man Bankman-Fried are sad commentaries on how liberalism has descended into progressivism and ultimately into Stalinism. I think that's a really powerful claim at the end there, Victor. But well, it is. Talk about this column. Well, remember, he, he spoke to a group, I think, sponsored by the New York Times recently, and he was applauded. And he had gone on this sort of nerd stick where he wears all these sloppy clothes. He looks down. He says, I was very idealistic. I was naive. I tried to do good. I wanted to do this. I gave to Republicans a fraction. I can't tell you who I did, but I did. I was, you know, he has this whole little propaganda thing and people were buying it and they liked the idea both before the midterms when he was a saint and then mysteriously after the midterms and then mysteriously when he was going to testify and get six hours of testimony before Congress, he was suddenly indicted by Merrick Garland. So he was an icon and he gave 40 million, probably more through PACs in the last election, 10 million he'd given to Joe Biden. He promised a billion dollars. They loved him. He was salting that money around left-wing media. We don't even know all the media, the sites, the blogs, the, the traditional media that he gave money to. But he understood something about America. If you are a crook and a Ponzi scheme person and an extortionist, whatever you are, and you feign that you're left-wing and you're doing it all for the cause and for humanity, then you're and you salt money to the media and to the left-wing, you're going to get exemption. And he did get exemption. He was sort of a, he was sort of the financial counterpart of Jeffrey Epstein or Harvey Weinstein. And they knew that. Weinstein knew that he could assault women without worry as long as he, the media said that he was brilliant. He was left wing. He was liberal. The Obama daughter was a intern in his empire. You name it. And the same thing was true. Of Jeffrey Epstein, he had a he had a desk at Harvard University because of, he was one of the anointed big donors. No one looked twice at what he was doing. He had Bill Clinton on his plane. Nobody cared. They understand that. So this guy understood that at thirty, and people worshipped him. And then you, along comes Elon Musk, and nobody had been able. I know he got tax credits. I know he got help from the government, but nobody. Remember the Chevy Volt? Nobody could make an electric car. And the future of electric cars is dubious because it depends on whether or not the United States is going to create nuclear fission plants and maybe someday fusion because it's going to need a huge amount of cheap electricity to power these things. And if you don't do it, it's probably not going to be a wise investment. But nevertheless, he actually built a car and it was not a Buick. It was not a Ford. It was not a Dodge. In other words, he went outside of the big three in a way that everybody who's tried it since the 1950s has failed and he succeeded. And then he created a rocket company and he had a very excellent record of sending. He revolutionized the ability 
to put satellites in space at a low price. And he does it all the time with mostly success. He not only outperformed NASA, but he outperformed his competitors. And my point is that he had a record of success. And he was beloved by the left. I couldn't walk down through the Stanford Shopping Center, down through downtown Menlo Park, without seeing Teslas everywhere. I couldn't walk into the Hoover Institution or Stanford without everybody saying they wanted a Tesla. It was a mark of green authenticity. And then he did something that was even stranger. He looked around. He said, I'm going to go into Silicon Valley, of which he knew well, because with Peter Till, he was one of the original PayPal people. And he said, what the hell happened to Silicon Valley? It used to be a bunch of eccentric, brilliant people who were against the man. They were against the big Xeroxes, the big IBMs, the old establishment. They were the kind of the Steve Jobs kind of off the wall people that were irreverent and, and funny and neat and libertarian. Let your do your own. And they're Stalinist. They don't believe in free speech. And I'm going to buy this Twitter. And, you know, when I heard this, I thought, wow, this company is double is is worth one half of its stock, which is driven up by the elites monopoly of it on the two coast it loses money jack dorsey with this manson look and the ring in his nose is is bizarre to say the least but more importantly he's kind of been kidnapped by the ruling elite they kind of made him irrelevant as he did his yoga or zen thing and they took over the company and then they lavished money on themselves with you know restaurants and yoga classes and were in San Francisco, and they were Stalinists. They just went through a list and got the FBI. They got about 80 FBI agents working with them, and then they told them, if you retire, you're going to get a job, and we've got almost as many working for Twitter, and it was a scam. And it was the idea was, hey, if anybody from Hollywood calls or the FBI calls and they want that guy off, get him off. And then lie and say that he violated Twitter policy or don't say it at all. And be vindictive. And as I said earlier, you know, don't go after the Taliban. Don't go after the Ayatollahs in Iran. Go after Donald Trump. He's a much more serious threat. And that's how they operated. And he came along and said, I'm going to lose a lot of money and I'm going to have to fire everybody. But I want to do two things. I want to restore free speech. I know he's eccentric. He didn't do it systematically, but that's what he has done to a certain extent. And as far as doxing, you know, I if I were him, I would have had a board of doxers, uh, auditors that audit doxing. But he doesn't have time. He's losing money. So he just said, don't print information about people's homes that leads to purported or possible violence. And they did it. And he banned them and they went nuts and he cleaned them out and they went nuts. And he's got a lot of files that's going to expose that the FBI used Twitter as a contractor. In other words, they knew it was illegal for the government to suppress free speech. So they went around that constitutional iconic law and they said, these people can do it as a private company. And we're going to give them a list of people we want uh, silenced. And we're going to have kind of a revolving door in the same manner we do with, you know, Lockheed or Raytheon. 
we'll just do it with Twitter and Silicon Valley in general. And he scared the hell out of him, Jack, because we know that Facebook is doing it. And we know that when you go on Google and you search, you, those search results are not going to be entirely the most read or the most important articles necessary to find out something. They're going to be arranged by logarithms, algorithms, I should say, that uh, the order will be predicated on ideology because that's what they want to do. They want to persuade you or indoctrinate you. And all of that's coming, and that's why they hate him. So they're trying to destroy him. And this is a guy who, whatever you think about him, he did create material things. He just wasn't a creature creature of the era, of the cyber world. He actually did things. Right. And you can see them. You can watch television, and you can see a rocket take off. You can mm -hmm. see a Tesla go 300 miles on mm -hmm. a battery charge. You can see what he's done. And Mr. Bankman Freed did nothing. And I don't know what we call it, but we know now what what he did. He put coins. It would be like I have an orange tree. You know, I have orange trees on my farm. Right. And I say, you know what? These are about the these are very scarce commodities. And if you buy an orange, I can guarantee it's going to go up in value. And then all the people buy these oranges on the tree. And I said, you know what? I have a record of each one of your oranges and what you paid for it. And as more people want those finite number of oranges, the value is going to go up. And then I went out there and picked them and sold them. And they don't exist anymore. And I took the money that they bought bought them with, and I used it for other reasons. Probably I, I thought that because they don't really produce anything but rot on the tree, I'm going to invest in other areas, speculate, use it for pad po politicians pockets media pockets whatever so it was i mean he didn't produce anything did he it was just no. based, based on a lot of people want what i have and they're going to drive up the price so i'm going to be worth the company's going to be worth 40 billion dollars even though there's only probably 11 billion in real money and then when people saw that and how high it was going they thought mm, about time to take it out so we thought uh-oh I can't cover that. So I, at that price, so I'll either need a new person to buy at the high price and I'll lie and lie and lie about how stable it is and I'll get favorable, cover favorable coverage in the media and that will allow people to put new money in so I can pay the old money that's leaving or, and I will take the money from their individual accounts and try to make a bunch of money. I don't know, in the stock market, startup, you bought a lot of startups, et cetera. He was a crook, in other words. Mm -hmm. He didn't. He's never created anything. He played on what? He played on the fact he grew up at the Stanford campus. His parents were well-known left-wing law professors at Stanford. He went to MIT. He was left-wing. He hung out with left-wing nerds. He went down to the Bahamas and tried to avoid taxes. So that's what the left likes they like somebody like that and they hate somebody that accomplished something like right Musk. it's not right victor it's not too deep in the human psyche at least the ma the man you know the masculine you go back to saint crispin's day right you hold your manhood cheap others will and people do resent on on even a, a local level the guy that can be creative can make things the guy that can 
you know, paint his house. The guy that can use a chainsaw versus the guy I, that can't. It's I it's think, a real resentment. Uh, I, of, I think I think everybody should have a policy or an ideology or an aspect of life, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're doing. If you see somebody else who's creating something positive for society and you know you couldn't do that yourself, then I think you're obligated to have some degree of respect for them, for their accomplishment, even if their private life is not yours or even if you disagree with their ideology. If they can do something real that really helps people, then I I think you need to admire them because they built something. And and I, I don't understand this idea you hate this person or you don't like what the, you know what they represent. If they do something, because there's not very much of it anymore. We don't build dams. We don't build reservoirs. We don't build new freeways. We don't do any of that anymore. We can't. We've lost the ability to. Maybe we'll talk about that in the next podcast about what our universities are turning out in terms of engineers or a scientist or mathematicians or whatever right. it's necessary, but we're not doing it like we used to. And I don't think we have the ability to do it. So when somebody comes along like this as a throwback to the 19th century, then I think everybody should say, you know what? There has to be a place for him in society. Right. And I think he's going to be a tragic hero. I really do. I think kind of like Donald Trump because he's under so much stress. He's spread far too thin. It's far more important, I think, for the world, for his space and Teslas than it is for Twitter. But he thinks that Twitter is an iconic moment where if he succeeds, it'll be a domino that knocks down all the other dominoes and that Silicon Valley will be so terrified of what he revealed and what a conservative government might do when it comes into power that suddenly Facebook and Google and Apple and all of them are going to come out of the woodwork and say, okay, mea culpa, how can we, you know, reform? That's what he thinks. So that would be very important if he were to be successful. But I don't know. I I, I feel that he's spread far too thin. They're going after his family. He's human. He's going to react. He's not getting enough sleep. He's His time is at the expense of two successful companies his time at Twitter. And when you read these stories that the Twitter office is completely empty and that these worthless employees are gone and he's got these Tesla engineers frantically working 20 hour days to keep the thing going until he can get it back up. And he's got a hundred percent negative coverage in the traditional media. You just wonder how he can do it without having a complete physical breakdown. So I wish him well. I want him to succeed. Right. And uh, I don't really care that he's eccentric. He has to be eccentric in some ways to do what he's done. And may he succeed, but I'm I'm afraid that like a lot of tragic heroes, after he did what was necessary, people are going to say, oh, my God, I'm so glad that he went in and shook up Twitter. But he tweets. Why did he have to tweet that about you know, Fauci, oh, my gosh, why does he right. get in arguments? He's kind of like, oh, my God, I can't I can't take him anymore. And I think yeah. that's what happens to tragic heroes. Their methodologies start to grate on people after they, he's, they've accomplished something that aids everybody. And people think, well, he did a good thing. I don't need him anymore. 
Right. Well, Victor, appreciate all your wisdom today. And there was a lot of it. And we um, appreciate everyone who listens to your wisdom. There are 40, 50,000 downloads an episode of your podcast. It's uh, doing very, very well. Thank those people who, particularly on Apple, iTunes, where they have the ability to rate the podcast, that they do so, zero to five stars. It's rank, the average ranking now is 4.99 So uh, for Victor's wisdom. So uh, doing something right. You are anyway. Some people leave comments on Apple. Here's one from Lucene. Lucine Jan, L-U-C-I-N-E-J-A-N. Love listening to you. I've been listening to you from nearly the beginning of this podcast. I had recently read The Soul of Battle, recommended by a friend, and found it fascinating. So when I heard you had a podcast, I knew I had to listen. I've never been disappointed. I find myself making sure if I only have time for one show, I make it yours. And as a third generation Armenian, Armenian American, albeit originally from New York, not California, the fact that you occasionally mention Armenians and know our history, especially in the U.S., just gives me a little extra joy. First Christian uh, country in the world, Armenia. Yeah. Yeah, well, the arcs up there somewhere too. Yeah, the you know, first right? country. Uh, no, no, man, no uh, ethnic minority have been more successful so quickly. Were you? Had you gone there, Victor, when you were over in? Uh, no, I did Greece not. And, I'm not. Yeah. I have not. But Greece has a lot of Armenian uh, uh, Armenian residents, right. and it's very close because it's an Orthodox country. It's right. a different type of Orthodoxy, but. It's part of the Orthodox world, so they're very close. And, of course, they have one commonality, and that is they've both been slaughtered by the Turks. Right. And uh, that was one of the major prejudices I've tried to overcome is, is because I lived in Greece three years in total, probably. And I had a prejudice against the history of what Turkey has done in that region to Armenians and to Greeks. And I'm, I'm not sure that the Turkish people today... I don't think they're responsible for the past, but the government today is very eerily similar. It threatened the other day to send a missile into Athens. It claims the Dodecanese Islands. But just to finish that riff before we end, uh, sure. I grew up in the agricultural industry and there was a lot of prejudice toward Armenians because they were masterful uh, packers and shippers. And my experience with the Armenian community has been one of admiration. It's just one of those ethnic minorities, uh, Greeks are another one, that and that just changed the United States. They are so hardworking and they're so competent. They put such a high premium like Koreans on education and they've just been a plus plus. And we're patriots but, too. They're, who, they're who, patriots. Who, they're yeah. patriots. They're very accomplished. Um, right. The diaspora is now intermarried. So when you say Armenian, uh, the numbers of they're in the third and fourth generation from the diaspora after the genocide. So a lot of Armenians are no longer members of the Armenian with the center of their life that kept the Armenian culture vibrant right. was the church. But that has been diluted as it happens to every, you know, speaking of somebody who's a fourth, third generation Swede, 
Swedish American, and that's been completely diluted. But nevertheless, for that moment, they really did a lot. And uh, whether it's an ag company or uh, business, you name it. And, um, I can just, yeah. if I had time, I could go on about Fowler Packing or other countries like uh, companies like that that are international companies and from local talent created technology and marketing and agricultural principles that are far advanced anywhere in the world, right near where I live. So, and that was part of that Armenian tradition of hard work and excellence. Well, thanks for that, Victor. And thanks for everything for today. And thanks folks for listening. And guess what? We will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. I appreciate it. Hey there, it's Amanda Head, and I am thrilled to introduce to you my new exciting podcast, Furthermore, with Amanda Head, broadcasting weekly from sunny Los Angeles, California, and brought to you by the dynamic Just the News Podcast Network. On this fresh and engaging podcast, I delve into the latest news with a little bit of a twist, exploring the furthermore of every story. But this isn't your typical run-of-the-mill news commentary or politically charged program. I interview a diverse range of guests, including business leaders, entertainers, musicians, educators, experts, politicians, and many influential figures from both the United States and around the world. So why not make your Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays a little more interesting? Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey.